0: All right, guys, well, my favorite movie, or at least one of my favorite movies, is Shawshank Redemption. I'm not gonna ruin it for you, but it did come out in 1994. So if you haven't seen it by now, come on. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's the story of two men who are friends in prison. It's really the story of a guy who's innocent in prison and he's trying to find his way out. We're actually, for some reason, we're obsessed with prison movies and shows, right? Remember Orange is the New Black came out on Netflix. It was a big deal. Uh, there was Oz back in the day, this scary show on HBO. There was uh, Prison Break. Anyone ever see Prison Break. Season one, awesome. Season two and three, not so much. You can't break out of prison three seasons in a row. It loses something. (laughs) We love the reality shows, behind bars, maximum security prisons. You know, we don't ever want to go to prison, but we're fascinated by how things work in prison. Today, we meet Joseph in prison. He's also an innocent man trying to find his way out. If you'll turn me to Genesis chapter 40, we're going to get there in just a minute. If you're new and welcome, okay, Uh, let me just tell you where we've been. We're, We're looking at one of the greatest guys in the Old Testament. And one of the clearest pointers to Jesus, his name's Joseph. And, and you can think of his life like this. Uh, it's in terms of Ps, actually. You, he was a pampered son, the favorite son at 17 years old. His brothers throw him in a pit, that's the second P. Um, he ends up with Potiphar, that's the third P. Uh, then he, that doesn't go well because of Potiphar's wife, so he ends up back in prison, fourth P. Uh, and then he ends up in the palace, fifth P, in front of Pharaoh, sixth P. And actually what we're going to see today, this is interesting, and this is sometimes how life works, strangely enough. We're going to see him at his lowest moment, chapter 40, and at his highest moment. Sometimes they're right next to each other. Now for you, most of your life is gonna be like lived in the plains. You know, sorry, I hate to break it to us. We're average, we're normal, okay? We're gonna live in the plains. Every once in a while you get up on the mountaintop and that's fun. And every once in a while you find yourself in the valley and that's not fun. But most of your life's gonna be on the plains. But what Joseph helps us to do is how do we deal with adversity and prosperity? They both are hard. How do we deal with suffering and success? How do we deal with pain and pleasure? Well, the answer is you have to be humble in success and hopeful in suffering. You know, it's like, well, what happens to suffering? You lose hope, right? What happens to success? You stop being humble and you be prideful. And and the way you do this, and this is really helpful, and this is kind of the intro before we get into chapter 40, is Joseph understood something that I want you to understand, and this is it. And people don't like it when you say this, but this is true. There are only two people responsible for your life ultimately, God and you. And that's actually the way you should think about your life. And that's the only way to really take responsibility for your life. Well, there's God and he's ultimately responsible for your life. And you have to believe everything in your life is father filtered. Because don't think about it. You don't even have to be a Christian. I know we're not all Christians here, but you you go, okay, wait a second. I didn't choose when I'd be born. So welcome. You know, most of us were born in the 20th century. It's like, or 21st, early 21st century. Okay. I didn't choose where I'd be born. Okay. That's nice that I was born in America. And when I say where, I mean who your parents are. You know, I, didn't, I didn't choose who I'd be born to, the, the wealthy family or the middle class family or the lower class family. And I didn't choose how smart I'd be. I didn't choose how healthy I'd be. It's like, well, and then this is actually what makes you compassionate on certain people. You realize sometimes their geography is their destiny. And you start realizing in your own life, you woke up on third base and you thought you hit a triple. And, and so the first thing you have to understand is everything in my life is father filtered. And, and then you have to believe that God is with you in your whole life. Remember the last chapter ended with God was with Joseph. What would you do if you believed God was with you? Like really, what would you pray? How would you risk? What would you give? Who would you share with? Okay, so that's kinda, well, that's maybe the big scary, like, hey, listen, God's made a lot of decisions for your life before you were born. And you know that if you think about it for two minutes that have deeply shaped who you are. And then the second thing is what people don't like. You are responsible for how you respond. You know, it's just the opposite of what most people will tell you today. They don't want to take any responsibility. But here's how we know this. They've studied this. Like in a family, say a family that something very tragic happens. Maybe there's divorce, okay? And if they study families that particularly have twins, well, that's, you know, as close of to of the, the same people as you can get. So, okay, there's twins. Family falls apart or financial crisis hits the family. A lot of times one twin, one of the twins gets better and the other twin gets bitter. It's like, well, what's the difference? How they respond. You have to make this commitment to your life, to yourself. You guys say, I'm not going to play the victim card. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna make excuses. I'm not gonna blame my parents. I'm not gonna blame my genetics. I'm not gonna blame my circumstances. And the only thing I can do is play the hand that I've been dealt. And that's actually the only forward plan that doesn't make me bitter. So today we're gonna look at Joseph do that. I mean, he has had a great deck of cards at the first in his life. Son of a patriarch, favorite son, pampered life. And then we've seen he's had these painful providences. We'll pick it up in chapter 40, verse one, look here. Sometime after that, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt, that's also a pharaoh, and his baker, later we'll meet the candlestick maker, he's coming, (laughs) committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. So this is, we read cupbearer and we read baker and we think, oh, blue collar workers or something. No, no, no. These guys were super high level. The cupbearer's job was taste the drink before Pharaoh does to make sure it's not poisoned. The baker was check all the food to make sure it's not poisoned. And so here's what we think happened. By the way, it was very hard for the baker and the cupbearer to get life insurance. Very difficult, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, they had a hard job. And what we think happened, now we don't know this for sure, but it makes sense. We think that there was some type of plot to poison Pharaoh with bread and drink or something, and he couldn't figure out which one of them was responsible for it. So he throws them both in prison. But later the cupbearer is exalted and restored, and the baker is hanged and executed. And so we think that later Pharaoh gets some news of who really did it, and that's why that happens. Okay, well, we need to see this. Here, look, look at me, verse four. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. Okay, so we see providential people and providential circumstances, here we go. And he, not a great translation, the literal Hebrew word is not attended, it's he served them, and he served them. And they continued for some time in custody. The first thing we see Joseph doing when he's suffering is serving others. We're gonna try to talk about principles when you're suffering. And again, obviously there's, there's moments where it's intense suffering and you just have to take care of yourself and you just you know, you know don't know what side is up and, and all of that. But after a season of suffering, he's been in jail for a while, he begins to serve other people. See, what happens when you suffer, the temptation when you suffer is to get out of community, to get away from people. And it's the very community and the very serving relationships that are gonna be part of your healing. So he starts to, to serve them and that actually op, op, opens up an opportunity. Look at verse five, in one night, they both dreamed. I told you in Genesis, dreams come in two. In Joseph's story, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Just a moment on dreams. Uh, I, you know, the, dreams are a big deal early in the New Testament and early in the Old Testament, which I don't know exactly what that means. But in Genesis, we get ten dreams. In Genesis, it's only fifty chapters. Ten dreams in fifty chapters. Um, in, in the beginning of the New Testament, we get a lot of dreams. You remember Mary, she gets pregnant, of course we know this Christmas story, and Joseph gets a, her husband of he gets a dream. Remember the wise men, they, you know, they get a dream. It's like, why dreams at the beginning of new seasons? I don't fully know. Maybe we need the dream before we have the scripture, and once we have the scripture, we don't need the dream as much. We, we're not sure, but but people today, modern people, people like you you know, and, and me, we, we don't think much of dreams. We have a dream, we're like, ah, it was strange. Sure, it was nothing. It's like, it was nothing? 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 It's an extreme form of thought, for sure, at least that. You have at least four to five dreams a night, even if you don't remember them. It's interesting, uh, Sigmund Freud, he thought that in your dreams, you told yourself things that you've been avoiding while you've been awake. I don't know, maybe. Why do we all have similar nightmares? Like there are universal, symbolic nightmares. We've all, I won't make you raise your hand. We've all had the I'm falling dream. We've all had the I'm flying dream. We've all had the I'm back in school and I'm not prepared dream. We've all had the I'm standing in my underwear speaking to people, Drew. Don't tell me I'm the only one. <laughs> uh, I've had a reoccurring nightmare. I have, and it's not super scary, but I, it's the same nightmare, I still have it, like a couple times, probably once a month. And it's some version of I'm not ready to preach. It, it changed, I, I had a busy week, I didn't prepare. Uh, I'm trying to print my notes, they won't, the printer's jammed. I'm trying to get to the church, I'm in too much traffic. I'm in the church building, I can't find the stage. It's like, it doesn't make any sense. This is not a big building, and I obviously know where the stage is. So our dreams are, are, are more important. We don't always know how God's speaking, but our, our dreams are important. Back then, dreams were a major way. They don't have the written-down word of God, a major way God would speak. So here's what happens. Look here. Verse 6. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces, faces downcast today? And they would, you, they'd probably just say, because we're in prison, <laughs> that might be a reason. No, but he noticed something unique. Um, and th- maybe this is another principle, in suffering, try not to be the place where you're so obsessed with your own suffering that you can't see the suffering of other people around you. There, there's actually a couple principles because what we're trying to do here, I mean, we're, genuinely, we are trying to create, this is really hard to do, but we're trying to create a genuine church community that cares for one another. And here's a principle of suffering. There's there's two principles from this verse. Principle one is you're not the only one suffering. Just all, And usually you're not the one suffering the most. But, you know, you're not the only one suffering. But here's another interesting principle. Most people won't tell you that they're suffering. Did you notice that? He's got to go, Joseph's got to go to them and go, hey, guys, hold on. I'm noticing you. I'm looking at your life. Because most people, now there's certain people, right? There's like, you know these people. There's certain people, that are, they're always telling you all the problems in their life all the time. That's a very small group of people. That's a very unique personality. Uh, the average person doesn't want to tell you their problems. They feel guilty. They feel embarrassed. They don't want to look needy. They, they wrestle with like, is this even really suffering? You know, they, they, don't, they don't want to be that person who keeps bothering other people to help them. So we're trying to create a, a church community where we can notice what's going on in people's lives and say, can I help you? So that's what Joseph does. Look here, verse eight. Then he said, then, or they said to him, so the cupbearer and the baker say to Joseph, we've had dreams. Now, when you hear dreams, you need to think God's revelation, okay? This is an important principle, God's revelation. Today we have the written down word of God. They had dreams. So he says this, they said to him, we have had dreams and this is so key, and there's no one to interpret them. God's revelation needs interpretation, it does. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. And look how polite he is. Please tell them to me. This is the first moment that we see that Joseph still has faith in prison. Now we know that because maybe we know the end of the story. But it, you know, it, if you're just reading the first few verses, you're like, well, maybe he's just a really good guy in prison now. Maybe he deconstructed his faith. This is what people do. This is what you'll be tempted to do. When extreme suffering comes to you, or just when long suffering comes to you, you get to the place sometimes where you say, what I'm experiencing is so different than what I think I believe, that I'm gonna change what I believe to fit my experiences. And a lot of people, here's a question you have to ask in suffering. Do I want to, have, to walk away from God and have all the answers? Or do I wanna walk with God with my questions? Let me explain so here's what I mean by that. Like some people, will get, they get very angry at God and suffering, and they say something like, you know what? I don't believe in God anymore. This is all just a random accident. Everything that happens is random. None of this has any purpose. And uh, that's, so now I have an answer to everything. It's all random, that's my answer. It's like, well, okay, good, you have the answers. Now you're not walking with God. But you've simplified it down to where it's all random, okay. You know, it's much harder to go, I'm embracing the mystery of this. I'm walking with God, even though I have my questions and I may have to walk with God with my questions the rest of my life. So then, but this is what's really helpful and we're not good at this and part of, I'll share this more in the next series we're getting into. We're gonna get into a series in a little bit after this series to help our church be more evangelistic. But one of the things that Joseph does that we need to get better at doing is he listens for people's problems. This dream was their problem and this is so powerful. He listens to their problems. We need to, by the way, we need to be the last people, maybe we're the only people left, uh, the Christian who can hear someone's sad story it's like, all right, I got you. Okay, what's your problem? Then they tell you their problem, and then here's what you do. This is, so, this is exactly what exactly he does. This is so simple. We need to get better at this. He listens for problems, and then he shows that God's word has the answers. That's all you do. I'm not saying it's super easy, but you, this is why most people come to faith in Christ when they have problems in their life. You know, their marriage is falling apart, and you can say, listen, I, can I? I've had my own marriage problems. Can, can we talk just a little bit about the power of forgiveness in marriage? And I don't know how I would be able to forgive my spouse if I didn't first understood how God forgave me in Christ. All of, you don't talk about it in weird ways. You talk about it in normal, natural ways. The word of God needs to be interpreted. That's exactly what he does for them. Look here. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, this is verse nine, there was a vine before me and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand And I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup. And I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. So Joseph, we're gonna see, he has a different word for the baker. The Christian needs to have two words for people, okay? Often we just wanna have the first word. This is the word of encouragement. And let me just say, everybody in this church, not everybody, just not just everyone in this church, everybody needs encouragement. You know, Mark Twain said, I can live off a of compliment for two weeks. Why? Because you don't get many. There are people, you have to understand this, and you probably do understand this, there are people who almost never get encouragement. Their parents never say anything. Their spouse never says anything good. Their boss never says anything good. Their friends never, it's like people are dying for it. they di- I mean, that's what a whole, uh, I mean, basically that's the kids are dying for it. Will you pay attention to me? And if I do something good, would you please tell me so I know who I am? It's like, that's all a kid wants. And we have to encourage people. We have to, we have to catch them doing the right thing and say, yes. We have to find out what's going on in their life and give them a promise from God and a place to look. But then, but then everybody needs encouragement. That's just like everybody. There's nobody that you know that doesn't need encouragement for sure. But then the hurting need hope. They need a special type of encouragement. If you've been around for a while, you know how much of a fan I am of Billy Graham, who went to be with the Lord in 2018. But um, Jim Baker, some of you will know that name, Google him later. Jim Baker was a famous television evangelist who ended up getting himself in a lot of trouble, did a lot of things wrong. um, And he ended up in prison, okay? And Billy Graham calls him when he's in prison. And says, I want to come visit you. And Jim Baker says, No, don't, no, no. You're Billy Graham. You know, you can't come to prison. It won't look good for you. He says, Well, I'm coming to prison. And what happened is Jim Baker showed up at what Billy Graham's funeral and the mainstream media, so I mean you know how the mainstream media is. So they interview him. What are you doing, Jim Baker? We know what you did. We know who you are. What are you doing at, at uh, Billy's funeral? And through tears, though it was decades later, he said, the reason I'm here is I was in prison and Billy Graham visited me. And he gave me a hug in my prison cell and he told me there was hope in my darkest hour. And this guy's crying about it decades later. It, if you can go to people and go, look, man, marriage is hard. I've had to say this to people before. It's like, dude, I have seen marriages. I know your marriage is a dark place. I have seen marriages come back from places way darker than this, I promise you someone's in addiction and you go, man, look, dude, I know people who've been in far worse situations or situations just like you. And Jesus loves to save addicts. And I've actually got a friend and he's walking in a measure of holiness. And, and he used to struggle with this and he, you know what, he'd love to meet with you. You know, part of the reason people are still suffering is because they never ask for help. You know, the cupbearer says, help me finally. He gets, he gets you know, it's like, I, this is the word for some of you. Some of you are suffering way more than you need to be. Because you haven't asked anybody for help. You know this happens in with finances. People are struggling with their finances, and they're so embarrassed because it's embarrassing. It's like, oh God, I, I don't know how to save money. I don't understand compounding interest. I don't know how to do a budget. You know, I God, I spent more than I make. I don't. I don't know how to get. I don't know how to negotiate for my salary. I don't know how to put a CV together. It's just all humiliating. It's like I. I want you to hear me say this, okay? Because this is the truth. In this church, I mean, I, I know this. There's no person you would go to to say, I'm in trouble and I'm potentially suffering more than I need to be. But the reason I might still be suffering is because I've been too prideful to ask for help in this area of suffering. It's like, dude, we are going to help you. The thing about life is you always are a novice in this new area. Nobody knows what they're doing and you need to talk to, it's like you're getting married. You don't know what you're doing. You're buying your first home. You don't know what you're doing. You're having your first kid. You have no idea what you're doing. It's fine. That's how we all start out. And then you find other people, you go, dude, I am going to suffer a lot more than I need to if you don't help me, could you please help me in this? And everyone's like, yes, I would love to do that. So he gives a word of encouragement. Then look what he does. And people need encouragement. Verse 14, he says this, only remember me. You're gonna get out, you're gonna be with Pharaoh. Only remember me when it's well with you. And please do me this kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. He wants to get, I guess he's under like some kind of house arrest prison. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. There's two other things I think that you need to understand in suffering that are right in this verse. Number one, it is okay to want to get out of your suffering. Do Do not believe some religious person or some overly spiritual person. I know all the lines on suffering. It's like, I know the, the the classic line is, don't ask to get out of suffering, ask what you can get out of suffering. It's like, that's a great line, but it's like, Joseph's like, I'm ready to get out. Look guys, there's no virtue in just suffering. Zero virtue in suffering. We Christians are not masochists. We suffer willingly and voluntarily and hopefully joyfully for God's greater purposes and plans, and we are willing to suffer. And we are gonna trust God in suffering, but if you can get out of suffering, get out of it. That's the lesson of Joseph. Joseph's not like, I, this is great, I love the Lord, I'm happy to be in prison. He's like, get me out of this. And that's completely fine. I think the principle is you can get out of suffering as long as you don't have to sin to get out of suffering. That's probably, it's like, okay, how can I get out of this? And is there a person that could help me? By the way, often there's not a how to get out of suffering, there's a who to get out of suffering. The who is the cupbearer, it's gonna work. Some of you are thinking how, stop thinking how. The how is a who, okay? There's somebody that can help you and that's why we have the church. So the second thing I want you to see there, and this this is a word for just a small group of you who have a certain type of personality, but there's definitely, it's definitely in this room. It's okay to stand up for yourself. Do you see what Joseph does? He says, look guys, I've done nothing wrong. And some people stole me, you know? I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. It's like, some of you are unwilling to do that. This is the first time he opens up about a story. Now, here's, I think, the principle on this. You can stand up for yourself as long as you're not putting others down while you do it. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, my idiot brothers, whose names are Judah and Reuben. You know, he doesn't do that. He just says, look, I got stolen out of this land. He doesn't even talk about the Ishmaelites. He doesn't blame the Ishmaelites. He's not blaming anyone else. And then he says, And I'm innocent. He didn't say, okay, there's this lady, she's Potiphar's wife, watch out. But some of you, you have to, you know, you gotta understand, it takes the whole Bible to make, you know, the whole Christian and you've got some verse that makes you think that being a Christian is a doormat. It's not. Some of you need to stand up for yourself at work. I'm serious. Stand up for yourself. You know you need to say something if you're resentful. Are you resentful to your boss or your coworker or something, you need to say something. You say it humbly, but you say something. Are you having fantasies in your mind of how, what you would say when you're driving home? This is what I would say. It's like, you need to say something. You know, and this is a real serious thing. And then this happens a lot in marriages. It actually happens a lot with guys with their wives. It's like, there's something you need to say that you haven't said it, you know? And, and you don't blame her and you don't, you just say, this is it, this is how I feel. I don't, I've not done anything wrong in this area of my life. My conscience is clean. Well, then he has to go and talk to the baker. Here, look at here. Verse uh, 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I've also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. In the the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, well, this is its interpretation. Uh, The three baskets are three three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and all the birds will eat the flesh from you." Okay, so we all like the cupbearer sermon. (laughs) We don't like the baker sermon. And and I will tell you that, you know, and I love all churches and I believe in all types of churches and all that kind of stuff. But you know, a lot of churches today, they are cupbearer churches. They want to talk about grace without talking about sin. They wanna talk about heaven without ever talking about hell. They wanna talk about a relationship with God without ever talking about repentance and you can't do that. We So, so we believe deeply here that it, it, hard words make soft people, and soft words make hard people, and you know this, right? I mean, there are so, some people, usually especially men, who design their entire life so no one will ever get close enough to them to actually confront them about something in their life. And they have either willfully, or maybe being willfully blind about it, they have set their whole life up so no one will ever say anything hard to them, and that's why their life is in that's why their marriage is miserable, and that's why their kids are resentful, and that's why they're having the exact same struggles, and that's why they're so self-unaware, because there's nobody in their, word, in their life who can give them a hard word. See, in the old covenants in churches, which we have a covenant in our church, that if you become a member, you sign. And in the old covenants would say things like, let's keep the peace and unity of the church. But another thing that all the old covenants would say is we will watch over one another in love. So if you're a part of our church, and no one thinks this way anymore because everybody's modern and individualistic, but if you are a part of our church, you represent our church and you are responsible for our church. Everywhere you go, you represent our church as soon as someone finds out that you go there and who you are. And everywhere you go, you're responsible. I would say you're at least responsible for the people in the church that you know. And if they're doing something and they're, you know, it's like, dude, they're doing if some guy's doing something you know if the guy's you know not treating his wife right not treating his kids right it's like dude his wife and kids need you to say something and here's what you need to do when you confront somebody you have to have three examples that you've seen them do it and the reason for that is everybody has their like little defense lawyer up you know right you want to confront someone you have to go hey listen I saw you do this three months ago, and I didn't. Because you're looking for patterns. You're not looking to catch somebody in a one-off. It's like, hey, look, I saw you do this three months ago, and i actually, I just made a mental note of it, okay? And and then I saw you do it last week, and I just saw you do it again today. And just so you know, here's what people do when you confront them. They they get defensive, they get angry, they cry, and then you talk to the real person. That's how it works every time. Most people aren't willing to get through that. I gotta overcome their defenses. She's gonna get angry. Oh, she's crying. Oh, there's the real her. And you actually see it. It's like the persona drops. It's like, oh, there now I'm having a conversation with the real person about what you're real. Yeah, you're right. I knew I wasn't this. It's like, I know, I know, we had to get here. I needed to have this conversation with you. The, the second thing when you when you talk when you confront somebody is you have to scour your own conscience and make sure that you've dealt with this area in your own life. You're like, all right, I'm gonna talk to someone about how terrible I've seen them parent. It's like, you know, there's no talking to people about their kids. So you're like, this is not gonna be easy. Okay. Then you, then you go, okay, well, you know what? I'm not perfect either, but Lord, I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna grow. I'm gonna actually lead with that. And here's the other principle. Um, if you can't wait to talk to them, if you're like, I can't wait to tell them, then you need to wait to tell them, okay? That's the rule. <laughs> I can't wait, then you need to wait. Um, and I think then your tone has to match the text. you know uh, I think you have to say, you know, if you're talking about the wrath of God, if you're talking about hell, there needs to be tears in your eyes and fear and trembling in your voice. And there needs to be a genuine concern. Hey, even if you don't believe these things, I believe these things as I talk to you. So there's the word to the cupbearer, there's the word to the baker. We need to be committed to giving both. We're trying to do that as a church. Then look at this. Well, let me say one more thing. I wonder if these dreams that Joseph begins to interpret make him think of his dream again. See what they say happens when when tragedy strikes your family when suffering enters, you have what's called dream death. It's hard to dream. Well, that, that's actually the definition. Of, like the number one thing you tell somebody in suffering, like this you know, this works. Like the number one thing you tell people in suffering is shorten the time frame. It's like, okay, I, I can't think about like six years. I, was, I used to think about a decade from now. It's like, no, no, no. Can I, you can't even think about a year. Some people are like, I can't. I, I need to get through this week. It's like, yes, that's exactly what you need to do. When you suffer, you shorten the time frame. But... Eventually the hope is that you can dream again. Yeah, you know, I wonder if there were times where Joseph stopped dreaming. And it's like, no, man, it's it's actually you need to still dream in the dark. You may need to begin to have a different dream, or you may need to have a Joseph is having the same dream, but he's realizing there's a whole different version of how he's going to get there. Look what happens. Verse twenty on the third day when Pharaoh which was Pharaoh's birthday, and people do strange things on their birthday, don't they? Here we go. He made the feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And then you read verse 23 and you go, no, here it is. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. It's like told us twice, he didn't remember but he forgot. This, I think, is probably, I think it has to be the lowest point in his life. He already is experiencing injustice, then he's in prison, then what he thought would work didn't work. I don't know how long it took, right? You don't know how, it's like, you know, okay, I'm sure the is busy, <laughs> you know. Yeah, tell pharaoh, you know, how to get his job back? I'm sure he'll be here in a week or two. And then, you know, we always have that moment where it's like, oh no, I think they, this isn't going to happen how I thought it was going to happen. You know, how do you deal with disappointment? Like, I think one of the things you do with disappointment is you own When you're in the lowest part of your life, what do you try to do? You try to own what you can own in the situation. Like I I wonder if Joseph, and I don't know this for sure, I wonder if Joseph is sitting there and all these terrible things have happened to him. And he thinks, what have I contributed to this? And maybe he thinks, you know, I was a pampered, spoiled 17-year-old kid who liked to go out with the clipboard and spy on my brothers. And I like to put in, put it in their face how I was the favored son and I was a horrible younger brother and I made it very difficult for people to love me. It's like okay well that was that was you know 10 years ago, but yeah yeah, yeah that's actually what I did and I need to, I need to own that I think I think when you're in a low spot you try to forgive who you can forgive. I don't know when he forgave the cupbearer. I think he forgives Potiphar's wife because when he's exalted later he never goes after her. And I don't know if this is the beginning of forgiving your brothers, because if you've ever had to forgive somebody if anything really hard, you know that you don't just do it overnight. You do it over time. And you continually to decide to forgive this person. But then he's forgotten, do you see that? Like in, in I don't know, I don't know how many of you feel forgotten. Um, some people feel, the most common people who feel forgotten are people who don't have a, whose dad left them. You know, moved across the country, married a woman half his age, started a new family. And it's like, dude, or never married his mom. It's like, did what happened? Did Dad not care about me? Did he forget me? What's probably the most common is, and this is mostly with women. What happens is, women feel forgotten when they were suffering with another woman, but that woman's life has gotten better. I'll give you an example. Two women are single, and they would say, "You know, I feel like I'm suffering. I, I've been single way longer than I thought I'd ever be single." And uh, and so they get together. They watch me and Girls. They watch How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. Right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what they watch. <laughs> and they ha- they hang out. And, and 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 then and then one of the girls, ladies, you know, gets gets a boyfriend and. The other one's like really excited, you know? And and, and then she gets engaged and then she, she gets married and the, and the woman, you know, the other lady comes and she's the bridesmaid. and But then like, you know, now that lady's a wife and she has a home and the couple start hanging out together. And, and, and the girl who's still single is like, does anyone forget that we were single together? Don't forget me. This happens with infertility. We were both infertile. I celebrated when you got pregnant. It was a little hard, but I went to the baby shower. I'm really excited about your family. I'm still single. People feel forgotten when they tell you something and then you never ask about it. And just know, and this took me a while to understand this, that people want you to ask about the suffering in their life. And most of us, we don't know that. We're like, I don't want to bring it up. It's like, here's how people think. Here's what people think. I'm thinking about this all the time. I would like to know that somebody's thinking about this some of the time. I would like to know that somebody's thinking about this at least when they're with me. And so he's forgotten and then look what happens. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So two years is a long time. That's enough to get pregnant, have a kid, two of them. That's enough time to be halfway done with your college education. Why does, so here's, I think, you know, we, we we say, we talk about Jesus as Lord, right? And in that phrase is the idea of submission. I, I submit my life to Christ. Here, there's two levels to submission. I really believe this. Level one of submission is I do what God's word says. I submit to what the word of God says. And that takes faith and trust and hope and a lot. The, the second is not just I submit to God's word, I submit to God's timing. Ugh, that's the hard one, right? Because what do they say? God is never late but he's rarely early okay and a lot of people so so let me just try to comfort you from joseph's life because you're always trying to figure out why now why me why am i waiting so long whatever it is and why so and god doesn't owe us an explanation but maybe he'll give us one in heaven for 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 why we're waiting on certain things but we know with joseph because what would have happened why does he have to wait two more years because if the cupbearer brings him out and says, dude, this guy's innocent, he was stolen, he hasn't done anything wrong, Pharaoh goes, all right, well, back you know, back to your family, you go. So he would have gone back to Jacob and his brothers and guess what would have never happened? He wouldn't have been ready when Pharaoh had the dream to interpret it. That's what happens, let's see. And behold, I'm in verse two. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass, and behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. So he's having a nightmare. Dream's come in too, so he's about to have a second dream. And he fell asleep and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good. By the way, grain and cows were the two main forms of the economy. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, Thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief cup, chief baker in custody. In the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged." Okay. In all of the Joseph stories, they always hinge on a certain moment where everything changes. Remember, he's looking for his brothers in the fields in chapter 37. A guy meets him and says, Oh, I saw your brothers. They went that way. That transforms everything. This whole story hinges on somebody remembering somebody they forgot. Who do you need to remember that you forgot? And I know what you're thinking I don't know, I forgot. <laughs> I just wonder if there's somebody, this maybe isn't a word for everybody, but I wonder, if there's somebody you forgot, man? Woman, is there somebody that you forgot? It's like, you know, is there somebody who's still suffering who you used to think about and you need to think about again? And you just don't know. I mean, this, this guy remembering one person makes a huge difference in his life and everyone else's life. So finally, Joseph gets brought up. Look here, verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself, they didn't like hair on your head, the Egyptians didn't for men, and they didn't like facial hair, so he would get completely shaved. Shaved himself, changed his clothes. I told you clothing is big for Joseph. He came in before Pharaoh. So here, it's hard to overstate this. Here is Joseph standing in front of the most powerful man in the known world, who many thought was a god. And I think the principle is, because he's going to, now we're talking about, we're done with suffering. We're now talking about success. How do you deal with success? A lot of people don't deal well with success because we are so impressed by other people. Like, you know, Christians are terrible with this, unfortunately. We're like way too impressed with politicians. We're way too impressed with celebrities. We're way too impressed with business leaders. We're way too impressed with people who make a lot of money. Way too impressed with them. It's like, well, what do you do? It's like, you have to keep a view that God is big and people are small. There was a great book written years ago. It was called when people are big and God is small. And the book was on anxiety and the fear of man. And he said, that's it at the end of the day. I don't wanna oversimplify anxiety, but I don't wanna oversimplify the fear of man, but that is the problem in a lot of our lives. It's like, man, God is way too small, and my boss is way too big. God is way too small, my neighbor's way too big. God is way too small, my kids are way too big and i'm i'm going to start acting weird and strange around people when i have an inflated view of them and a small view of god the second thing is is he seems to have be the same person in every place which is very hard to do it's, the, it's it's the definition of integrity most of us have like a work life and then a family life and then a private life and then a vacation life and then a travel life and then a hobby life and 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 actually they say that's one of the reasons people get burned out people are like why am i so tired Like, you know, because certain people can handle a lot and other people can't. It's like, well, one of the, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is it's very exhausting to be a bunch of different people in a bunch of different places. Like I have this persona at work and I have this persona at home and I have this persona. It's like, it's too much. Um, And and so he, he comes, he stands before Pharaoh, look here. And I want you to show you what he says. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered, Pharaoh, it's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So how do you deal with success? God must be big, people must be small, right, okay? Secondly, you have to give God credit early and often for the good things in your life. We're not, we, You have to learn how to, Joseph's great at this, we're not great at this. You have to learn how to talk about God in normal, natural ways. You have to see your life not as a biography, the story of my expressive individualism and how I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and the college I got into and the job I got. and the promo- No, your life is not a biography. Your life is a testimony. Man, I cannot believe the things that God did in my life. And as I look back, I see the hand of God. And we have to learn how to talk to people about how God's working in our life and it not be weird. You, you, someone can't compliment you and you go, yep, the glory goes up. It's like, uh... I don't even know what that means, you know? You need, you need to take you need to take the right amount of credit, like just because you're not a robot, you know, and you interacted, you are responsible for your life. So if someone says to me, Kyle, that was a great sermon, well, blah, 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 that's nice. You know, I try to train myself to say something. One, I normally ask, like, well, tell me why and let me understand more, give me more specific feedback. And then I normally say something like, hey, thank you so much. I feel like I don't actually have a ton of gifts, but I think that one of the gifts God's given me is the ability to see what's in the Bible and explain that to people. And I'm I'm really grateful for that gift. I'm really glad it was helpful for you. I didn't act like I didn't play any part in it, and that I'm like a robot or something. But, but I also didn't get, I didn't get all Christianese about it, I, you know. So we have to learn how to talk about our lives and see God in them. Well, that's what He does. So then I, I got to skim some of these things. But in verses 17 to 24, uh, you can look in your Bible. But in those verses, Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. We've already seen it. He explains it to Joseph. In verses 25 to 32. Joseph comes back and goes, and you guys know this. He says, here's what it means. You're gonna be having seven good years and you're gonna have seven bad years, okay? But this is what I want you to see. What happens in verse 33 is is what we need to help people with. Look here. Now, therefore, remember, he he heard the dream. He interpreted the dream. He says, now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. So here's what he does. This is so important. People need the word of God interpreted and then they need help applying it. So up until this point, he interpreted it, but that's not helpful enough. This is where a lot of churches and a lot of Christians fall short. It's like, okay, here's what it means. Here's the Greek word, here's the Hebrew word. Here's what this image means. It's like, and everyone's standing there going, who cares? And he's like, okay, there's gonna be seven years of famine and then there's gonna be, or seven great years and then seven years of famine. And Pharaoh's like, uh, that's kind of scary. What do you want me to do about it? He goes, glad you asked. I'm going to help you apply God's word to your life. Here's what we need to do. First, we need a leader. We don't know if if Joseph thought he was going to be the one chosen, but he applies the word of God to Pharaoh's life. That's what people need help with. And then he applies the word of God to other circumstances, okay? So then he says this, look here. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. I love it. Joseph has a plan to apply God's word. Here's another, so, so normally they would save one-tenth. Now they're gonna save one-fifth. So instead of saving 10%, they're saving 20%. And Dave Ramsey would say, amen, okay? <laughs> Which this is a third principle in suffering, And er, sorry, this is a third principle when things are going well in your life. When things are going well in your life, prepare for when they won't. Like I'm telling you, I don't know all your stories, but like if you, if when Christmas comes, everybody's there in your family, and everybody's getting along, and everybody's healthy, and the kids are playing by the fire. Be very grateful and realize that, will, that 100% will not be the story every Christmas. And you thank God for the good times, and you make hay while the sun is shining. And then you realize the sun will not always shine. And so when times are good, you save. Money is the easiest way to kind of give that. We say here, give first, honor God. Save second to be wise. Live off the rest to teach your self-contentment. So, so he—he. He, it's amazing. Here's the word of God. Here it's interpreted. Here it's applied. Well, we no wonder you know Pharaoh comes to him and wants him to be in charge. Look at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, "Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God?" Joseph is the first person in the Bible we're told has the spirit of God. Look here. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Notice now Pharaoh's talking to Joseph about God. If you will learn, I think this is true, to normally and naturally talk to your non-Christian friends, family, and neighbors about God, you'll find them talking back to you about God. In fact, I think that most of us are more afraid to talk to our non-Christian neighbors about Christ than they are to talk to us about him. So here's Pharaoh now talking about God. And then look what happens in one verse, verse 40. It, ha- it looks like it happens quickly. I'm imagining like a, a small boy in the court seeing this happen. He steps in, somehow he hears Pharaoh say these words to this man, young man with all of the servants. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. If a little kid sees this, he goes, oh, this is amazing, I've never seen someone, I've heard about this, I've never seen in real life someone become an overnight success. Well, you know, and I just wanna say this out loud, there is no such thing in God's economy as an overnight success. I don't even know if God, I don't know how God thinks. I don't know if he thinks in terms of months or years, certainly not days. I I think he thinks more in terms of generations. And God is moving all of these different pieces. And here we have Joseph, he is exalted, but it happens what appears to be overnight, but we really know behind the scenes, there was 13 years of pain. Well, if you look, I won't read the next verses. He gives them all the signs and symbols. He gives them the ring, he gives them the robe, he gives them the chariot, okay? He does all that. Then look at verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. Um, just a note, there's not that many ages of people given in the Bible, but 30 is a common age. Most famously, what, what does Jesus do? Enter ministry at 30. When did King David become king? 30. When did the Levites able to serve in the tabernacle? 30. When does Joseph get to be head with Pharaoh? 30. You know the word senator is the Latin word that means old man? And we decided that you can be a senator when you turn. 30. I will say this, and this is just a, just an observation, I think from scripture as well from my experience that, and knowing other people, that 30 tends to be a bigger year in people's lives than they may realize. I it was at 30 years old that I decided to plant this church. I can remember that. And I will often talk to people at around 30 years old. It just seems to be one of those ages where often, I'm not speaking this into your life and saying for sure, but where often transitions come. Here's Joseph, he's 30 years old, something significant happens. Then look here. Verses 47 to 49 basically tell how the first seven years went, and he he stores up so much grain. But then look at verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. He also had gotten married. I forgot to mention that. I skipped those verses. He married um, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, and she bore those sons to him. So I think part of what I want you to understand is. I think getting exalted and having success was good for Joseph and it's gonna be good for others, but it wasn't part of his healing, maybe a little bit. I think more of his healing came with his family because whats joseph what's been Joseph's greatest problem? I have a broken, dysfunctional family. How does God heal people with broken, dysfunctional families? There's many ways, but I'm just telling you practically, one of the ways God heals somebody who came from a broken and dysfunctional family is they start their own. If you have a father wound, how are you healed from your father wound? By becoming a father. And what we see here is he becomes a father and he names his sons. I want you to see this. Look what it says here. Joseph called the name of his firstborn son, Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all, all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So a couple of observations as we close and we think about those names. The first is he calls his son Jewish names. He never forgot where he came from. That's another part of success. You cannot forget, this is who I used to be. This is where I came from. I'm in an Egyptian culture, but I still remember my spiritual roots. I still remember my family roots. I'm giving my boys Jewish names in an Egyptian world. Secondly, he names his sons in order. The first son, he literally calls his first son, I forget, which is really strange because if you call someone I forget, then every time you name them, you remember, right? Every time you, you have to continually remember that you forget. And that's exactly how you get over things. In some weird way, you remember that I forget. You're, you say, this is not this horrible thing. It did for a season, but it will not dominate the front of my mind. It will not make me bitter. It will not be resentful. I need to forget. And I need to remember that I forget. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, thought hell was a place where people never forgot. They don't ever forget anything that you ever did. They don't forget any bad thing that ever happened. But then I think this, you can't be fruitful until you forget. That's the order. I forget, I remember that I forget. And then God makes me fruitful where so many horrible things happen. One of the truest realities I've seen in 15 years of ministry is people's greatest sin struggle, their greatest suffering, their greatest weakness, long-term becomes their greatest ministry to other people. So when you look at this story, who are you? Well, who are we? Well, we're Pharaoh, right? We're the guy who thinks we know what we're doing or the girl who thinks we know what we're doing. And a guy shows up in our life, the greater Joseph, his name's Jesus. And he warns us of a horrible future that we didn't know was coming, the wrath of God. And he tells us what we need to do. It's not store up grain, it's repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the greater Joseph, right? Because how did, how did Israel get a savior through Joseph? An enormous amount of suffering. How did the church get a savior? An enormous amount of suffering by Jesus Christ. Not only that, sadly, guys, even though we're Pharaoh, we're also the cupbearer and not in a good way. We're the cupbearer who Jesus saves us and we forget about him. Like every day we become functional atheists and we forget about all the great work he did in our life. And even more than that, we're the baker. Because here's the the difference between Jesus and Joseph. There's some contrast there. Joseph only had good news for the innocent like, all right, cupbearer, you're innocent, I got some good news. Baker, I don't have good news for you. Jesus has good news for the guilty because of what he did in his life and his death and his resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we just give you this moment right now because I don't know there, I know there are people in our church that are in a valley. Lord, I pray that we would see them. Lord, would you give us eyes to see the suffering in our church? Would you let community groups come around people? Would would we have the kind of church environment where we see something and we ask something? Lord, I pray if somebody's suffering and they need help, they'd ask. Lord, I pray people would stay hopeful in suffering. Lord, for others, you know, this is the interesting thing about a church is, is at any moment someone's suffering and then someone's very successful and very fruitful. And they're experiencing a lot of prosperity, Lord, and I pray for humility for those who are experiencing lots of prosperity. I pray that they would honor you in it I pray they would realize that the times are not always good and they would be thankful for them while they are. We thank you that our hope is not in whether our life goes well or we're in a mountain or a valley. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and it's in his name we pray.